welcome to episode 187 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. How you doing? I'm good. Did you notice me kicking it back? Yeah. Into, oh, I just, what was the name of that show? I just totally lost it. Arrested Development. Thank you. That yes. was like the old school intro before we knew how to actually do an intro. Yes. Listen, that, I love that intro. You put that together and it was beautiful. I just threw a bunch of stuff together, like almost at random. I was like, I need the word brother. Let's find a <laughs> clip where someone says brother a bunch of times. But that's one of those great shows where the Hey Brother was like thematic throughout and yeah. it's used all over those episodes. Yeah. So hey you, you did a good job. Yeah. 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 People still quote that to me occasionally. Yeah. I do like it. Yeah. Classic. Classic. OG style. So well, we've got affirmations. We we've do. got denials. That's true as I well. I know you usually start us off. Would you be so kind to do again this week? Yes. Yeah, so us? I am going to keep it short on this uh, affirmation, actually keep it short. And I know last week I said I'm going to keep it short and it was like 25 <laughs> minutes long. So I have been listening to a new short podcast called Scotland's Forgotten History, which, you know, I'm a history nerd. I love it. <laughs> where, where do you find this stuff? Well, no, no. So I saw a bunch, I saw a bunch of links in a Facebook group I'm in and I was like, this is kind of weird because it doesn't seem to be like an explicitly Christian podcast. So it seemed out of place. So I listened to it and it really ends up being like, kind of the history of the persecuted church, at least in the part of history I'm listening to right now, the history of like the persecuted covenanters and like the figures of the Scottish, like the distinctly Scottish covenanter reformation. So it's okay. an area of church history that I'm like kind of tangentially familiar with, but it's really interesting. It's really well produced. Um, it's, it's Scottish guys. So their accents awesome. And it, it's actually really well done. They have this like really epic music. It sounds like a professionally done podcast. Um, they have a whole website that's associated with it that I haven't really looked into. But I realized like Scottish history is really like important to Presbyterian history. And I don't actually know as much about Scottish Reformation history as I'd like. So I'm excited. Check it out. Scotland's Forgotten History. That's very Renaissance man of you. I try. Uh, you, I mean, it's sort of Renaissance. It's like another niche area of church history is like the whole thing. It so. is. But again, just the fact that like a Scottish, a short Scottish history podcast yes. exists and that it would find its way somehow onto your phone is very Renaissance, man. Yes. What about you? What are you affirming today? I respect that. Well, this is also in the media category, I guess, because we want to keep everything consistent. And I know maybe nobody else cares except for you. And I do appreciate your compassionate care. But this affirmation is in line with keeping everybody up to date with my saga of watching all of the Star Wars movies in order of release oh, and filling in my gaps. So I've basically seen everything now with the exception of nine, but I did see a movie this week that I haven't seen. And I know it's somewhat polarizing, but I saw Rogue One and I just got to affirm that bad boy because that was an excellent movie. It is a great movie. It's too bad that it came out in like a time period where everybody already knew what was going on. It really like sucked the drama away from the movie in some sense. But yeah, it was a phenomenal movie. 
it was just a joy to watch. It was different in its cinematography. I thought it was a little bit more dramatic, a little bit more artistic. Yeah. The the point of view, even in the battles, like what I love is it's it's almost like Saving Private Ryan meets Star Wars in that yes. last scene. Like it's very war oriented and you get a sense for like the real chaos. I was really drawn into some of those characters. And of course, you know, by nature of where this movie happens and when it takes place that they're not going to survive. But the melancholy at the end is altogether appropriate. It, yeah. It's kind of a beautiful thing. And... So I was watching this through. I've been watching it almost like in a serial style, like just as my wife and I have time, we'll sit down and watch 45 minutes or 20 minutes. And I was re- lamenting to a friend that I was watching it and wish I could watch more at, in a sitting. And he said something like, oh yeah, it's a great movie. And I was like, well, I got this impression that some people don't think it's so great. And because it's, depending on how you feel about the canon and where it takes place, and it's a kind of a one-off, but by itself, so good. And so he was like, oh yeah, it has like one of the best Darth Vader scenes in the entire catalog at that point i was about 45 minutes out from the end and the only scene i saw with darth vader is he has some conversation basically that's all it is with the guy who's building or has built the death star and i'm thinking to myself yeah i guess that was pretty good like it's always good to see him he's pretty interesting (laughs) character so it's kind of like i guess there was a lot more that happened there like emotionally and like a deeper level that i did not pick up and so i was just like wow like this dude is really in tune to these movies and I, I guess the acting was better than average and Darth Vader's character was more fully developed in that scene. And then... Then you saw the actual scene he was talking about. And then, yes. <laughs> and then that scene where he boards the aircraft and all the lights go out and just the lightsaber lights up. I, I literally said out loud, oh my word. Yeah. It, it, that is an amazing scene. It was total fan service. And, and the total. frustrating thing is like, okay, so presumably Rogue One ends and then new hope begins like moments later i mean it may not exactly be that way but like literally moments later it's pretty cheek to cheek and the problem is that you go from darth vader as like this super ultra mega powerful guy to this like dude who just like He's wanders chill. in and doesn't really do anything <laughs> like he he just physically lifts up a dude and throws him against the wall like there's really right. no force powers being but like moments later he like lifted up a dude and slammed him into the ceiling it, yeah or stood at the door of an open vacuum of space and just stands there and nothing happens <laughs> yeah so good. So the, I get it. I get why stuff like that would lead people to say this affirmation is a bit triggering, but I think it was just a joy to watch. And I was pleasantly surprised by it. I honestly, and this is going to be triggering too. It might be my favorite movie so far, yeah. just in its own right, compartmentalized. It was such fun to watch. And that scene is just like banging. I agree. Yeah. It's weird because like it immediately ends and you have the whole lay experience and you do think to yourself, he was just pretty mad. Like Vader was just like, just tore up a bunch of dudes. And, and the, of course, when it starts episode four, like he just kind of walks in more or less fairly chill. Yeah. And it's like, what's going on here? Like they have the whole conversation. Yeah. There's like, like nothing. There's really nothing to it. He just kind of walks in and it's like, <laughs> yeah, give, so, me the, give me the plans. Yeah. Like maybe, maybe time elapsed. Obviously, maybe that's what we're to think. Or maybe like he just calmed down. Somebody was like, yo, chill a second. Like when you, when you have this conversation, I know you just absolutely destroyed a bunch of dudes. Yeah. Just take it down a couple notches. That's going to be better for our interaction. It's like, it's like, you know, you might catch a little few, a few more flies with honey than with force choking. (laughs) And Vader's like, yeah, you're probably, you're You're probably probably right. right. I got a little out of hand. That was my bad. After he force choked that dude who said it, like he's saying yeah. it through a force choke. He's like, he's like, remind me to apologize to that guy that I just threw into the vacuum of space. <laughs> so, and they're like, Lord Vader, he's dead. Oh yeah, that's right. 
<laughs> My bad. That, that one's on me. Oh, yeah. That one's Ooh. on me. Well, Send so, flowers to his family. At the risk of prolonging this longer than it already has been, I want one of the things I wanted to ask publicly over the podcast is, and especially to you, is do you think, because of all the force choking that happens, and this happens like it's ubiquitous, right? Like no matter who you are, if you're on the dark side, the force choking is like the go-to method of expressing your frustration or providing punishment for the most part. And so the question I have is, is that a specific learned behavior? Like somewhere in the course of your, your pedagogy, like as you're going through the syllabus, you're like, oh good, like in four weeks is the force choking episode, like the lesson, like, because it seems like there's a, there's a margin for error there that could be substantially wide. <laughs> so like, do you learn that? Or do you think they just pick it up? You think it's just kind of like one day you're like, oh, I can force choke people. I know the exact amount of force choking to provide in any given situation. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the impression I get is that like there's like a relationship between the hand that's choking and the actual like pressure. I would actually think that like the person could probably feel like physically feel the person's throat as they're grabbing it in such that like they'd be able to tell how much pressure they're putting on. Okay, interesting. It's like yeah. a psychosomatic reality to all this. Right, you're, yeah. you're actually physiologically sensing the person's throat in your hand. And therefore it's no different than if you were actually assuming that the average person, this is so morbid now would be able to know the right amount of force choking pressure to apply to a person. If you yeah. were just, I also think like up. if he kills him, he doesn't really care. <laughs> Maybe that's the better answer. Yeah. <laughs> I, like, I think it's probably like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Well, I just so. want to say like bully for us for actually tackling this question. Like this in, has in been the definitive Yes. Force choking training course question yes. episode. I agree. Well, that that's good because we do have some questions coming up. But before we get to that, let's rock some denials real quick. Yes. So I'm not going to say much about this. Uh, I'm denying criticizing a book you haven't read. So Amy Bird is a polarizing figure, uh, generally speaking, and especially right now. So she just had a book come out called Recovering From biblical manhood and womanhood, which is obviously a critique and polemic against CBMW and the, the book that kind of launched their flavor of complementarianism called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And I've started to listen to the book on audiobook. I'm going to read it after I've listened to it. I will admit that at this point in my listening and in some of the reading I've done, I'm a little, there's some things that are troubling and some things that I'm concerned about. So there'll be more to come on that in like a month when I finish the book. But there are a lot of people who are offering critiques of the book who have not yet and do not intend to actually read the book. And I'm just saying like that is unethical and a dishonest way to do things. Like you, there are people who have are critiquing the book based on what they assume it says, based on their understanding of what Amy Bird has said in blog posts and interviews, which you could probably get a good idea of what the book says in that, but you can't actually critique the book based on what she said in the past. And there are some things that are different from what she said in the past that came out in this book. So I'm right. just in general, I think that's kind of a dishonest way to critique a book. If you don't want to read the book, don't read the book, engage the arguments that she's made that you have interacted with and read before, but there's no reason other than wanting to kind of jump on the bandwagon of critiquing this new 
kind of controversial hot book that just came out. There's no right. reason to critique the book if you haven't read it. So it's kind of like a dishonest way to jump in on a conversation you don't really belong in. So if you want to critique the book, it's not that hard to read. It's not that expensive. Pick it up, read it. You can probably read it in a couple days if you really want to sit down and just plow through it. Um, but like I said, there's some things that I, I find troubling. There's some some conclusions already that she's drawn that I, I'm kind of like, eh, I'm not so sure that I need to go back and read a little more carefully and look at the footnotes and things you miss in the audiobook. But all that to say, if you want to critique this book or any book, just read the stinking book. Like, just read the book before you start <laughs> critiquing it. I know that seems like rocket science, and like in our age, that's just unheard of. But it just you just read the book before you actually critique it. And there's no excuse in this age to not do that because the accessibility of the material right. is just so present. So it's just so easy actually to get your hands on that stuff. And to your, I would go even one step further. Like don't critique it. If all you read is something about it, if all your sources right. are secondhand or derivative, that's not a good excuse to say that you understand it. Right. And so I think that that's actually really good advice because they actually, we're just on this theme of cognitive bias and this fits into something that you denied last week and even the yeah. week before this idea that don't just take, because if we're, especially as Christians, we should be charitable in our understanding of one another. So this idea, even if let's say like the title of a book is inflammatory, even if you think it's still in the vein of something that somebody's expressed before, if it's totally in line with everything else that you've read about them, there's still the chance, the non-zero probability that there could be something substantially different in that work. And right. so by merely just trying to go in or go full force on your criticism without actually taking time to listen, to in a sense, try to be, I guess, try to understand before being understood I just have almost like zero tolerance for it. Like I don't want to read somebody critiquing something they actually haven't read and haven't been thoughtful about on their own. Yeah. So that's just a good reminder. Like, don't be that dude. Don't, don't be innate. That that's yeah. just falls under the don't be innate. Yeah. Umbrella. Don't be innate. Read, read before you critique. Don't be innate. We should, we should have a series of like bumper stickers for this. Yeah. I th and I think that that would be for me, top of the list. I, I just, it's just so hard to have patience for, like, why would, why would you want to invest even in hearing somebody's opinion on something like that when they actually haven't waded through right. the argument, taking the time to read what the author has painstakingly yeah. put together? Yep. All right. What about you? What are you denying this week? Man, again, we're all media all the time. So this is a media denial, but it's of a quick and kind of different nature. Uh, so th I, generally this falls under denying earworms. Uh, but and I mean that like, you know, like obviously metaphorically or figuratively. Um, but I have this song that's been stuck in my head, but and it's an earworm that now spans like multiple weeks. If I'm alone and I want to sing, I don't know why, but this is the song that comes out. And this is somewhat embarrassing to admit because it's not a spiritual piece of music. And also it's not a piece of music that's like in my normal genre that I love, but I think that's exactly what earworms are. Yeah. Like when you get an earworm, is it an annoying piece of music for you or is it a piece of music that you actually enjoy? Sometimes it's a piece of music that I enjoy. The reason that happens, why it's annoying, is because the reason it's an earworm, they think, is because it's like a, it's like a, like a mental short circuit. You can't, yes, fi you can't right. finish the loop, and right. so your brain keeps on cycling on it. So it's like a song that you know enough to know the tune and part of the words, but you can't quite finish the chorus. So that's why it's mostly annoying. The songs you really like, you probably could finish the chorus, so... It doesn't get stuck in your head like that. Yeah, I, I, well, I know this song, and I've tried to close this loop many, many times, but it keeps coming back. And all I can say is, I wonder if it has something to do with like it has a quintessential like lift in the chorus. There's a lot of buildup. So without further ado, is it Oceans the, by Hillsong? It's Oceans, <laughs> isn't it? It's got to be Oceans. No, no, no it's you not that. You lead me out. Of, sorry, 
<laughs> that was actually really good. You got that right <laughs> on. Uh, that was, I was super in key. Um, no, it's, I want to know what love is by foreigner. I don't oh, know man. why, <laughs> but this song, just the chorus, I want to know what love is like in the shower, in the car, in the kitchen, doesn't matter if there's like a moment of silence and somehow I'm moved by music. That's what happens. Well, I just found the most disturbing thing ever. So I was trying to find out <laughs> while you were talking okay. what the longest time a person has had an earworm is for is. And okay. I looked up longest earworm. And Ooh. what I found is a thing that says the longest earworm is Microcatus rapi of South Africa. And in 1967, a giant specimen measuring 6.1 meters in length oh. was naturally extended Oh, so this is a worm that was like 21 and a half feet long. And I'm assuming yeah, it's gross. called an, oh, I typed earworm and uh, Google thought I said earthworm. So that's a little <laughs> less, a little less disturbing because we're not talking about something in a person's ear. Uh, wow. Yeah, that is slightly more comforting. Uh, this song is just like with me. I don't know why. I mean, I don't have anything against foreigner. It's an uh, amazing song with respect to like, it's very clever. It's got an amazing melody. Oh, that's fine. But it's not like I go around and say like, you know what I could do with right now is like, I'm, you know, like I'm making some eggs and I'm thinking, first of all, that situation doesn't happen. But if yeah. I were making some eggs then I would be like, you know what I need right now is throw on some, I want to know what love is by foreigner. But here's the problem because music is so accessible nowadays. And because I have like the echo device, I actually, <laughs> like this isn't my account now because I actually have said several times That's like, funny. In, in an effort to close the loop. Honestly, it was kind of like, just like, let me just go right into it. I was like, just, just play it. Just let's do it. And then it, it made it worse. It did. Wow. Yeah, I feel for you, man. That's all I got. So, and I need to mention something because it's going to keep coming up in this episode. <laughs> I can tell by the look <laughs> on your face what yeah. you want to say. Yeah, and it was happening while I was I was speaking there, which is maybe somebody perceived there's like, why does he sound like he's just rambling more than usual? And then there is a bird in this bush right next to my window that is trying to jam <laughs> a a giant candy bar wrapper into its nest. Like it's trying to build with this wrapper. And I just want to say to the bird, let it go. It's not gonna work. It's not the insulation <laughs> you're looking for. That's let funny. it go. I like the Star Wars illusion there. Uh, I'm it listen. I'm this isn't the, the this time. isn't the insulation you're looking for. This is not you know, the insulation you're working for. I have found that nature has gone crazy. <laughs> it, it just has with with people not being out and about. The like the world the world is returning back to like an unformed state. There is a there's a fox that lives near our house. Uh, we've always had foxes in the area. It's not that big of a deal. I was out with the dog the other day, and the fox yeah. literally walked past us, probably like twenty feet away. <laughs> just did not even care. And then I looked like across our parking lot, not even like, yeah. not even like 20 feet away at the tree line, like just out wide out in the wild over. They're walking down the streets now. And then I look <laughs> over and there was like five of its fox pups playing in the field oh, next wow. to our house. That's wild. not a care in the world. Just just hanging out out in the open. No big deal. Our dog didn't even freak out. So like even our really? dog was like, yeah, this is just how things are now. <laughs> This is just the post COVID-19 world. This is just the world. We're the virus. Hashtag we are the virus. Wow. Yeah. That is pretty impressive. It's crazy. I, I think we have been well spoken on this podcast about animals coming back and taking over, whether it's monkeys or foxes. Or goats. Or goats. Yeah. 
or yes. this bird that is apparently building its nest out of the wreckage of society. Yeah, listen, this and this thing is like it's building. It's a whole compound. It's I'm not sure nest is the appropriate word. It's far larger. I'm a little bit worried. Like I said, there's there's nothing to push back on it anymore. Now it's using our recycling and trash basically to yeah. build its own house. So it's about to install the ring app so it can see who's stealing from you. <laughs> this is how science fiction movies start. I'm yeah, telling you. Is it? Yeah, we we are in the beginning of a movie right now. I don't know what movie it is. And I'm not sure which of us is going to die. But if this is a movie, probably not both of us can survive. That's just good well, storytelling. It's it's a bit like you just took Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds and elevated it, technologically speaking. And that is more scary. Like, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't like the birds, but the, I mean, the movie. But if you add some kind of technology on top of that, it's even more frightening. I, I just had I just had an image of the death scene, like the, the emotional the emotional roller coaster of this movie that I've just constructed in my head. Okay. We're going to be together. And I don't know if it's you or me, but one of us is going to like be dying. And like the last words that one of us chokes out of our mouth is going to be like, love the brotherhood. <laughs> That's going to be it. And then the, everybody's going to cry. It's going to be amazing. It's very dramatic. Yeah. I thought you were going to say like one would choke out, like honor everyone. And the person that wasn't dying would like kind of put their hand on the chest and say, you know, yeah, or like, like he's gonna say honor. You're gonna say honor everyone and right. then die, and then I'm gonna like slowly close your eyes. I'm gonna be like, and say love, love the, brotherhood. the brotherhood. Man, yeah. this just got so dark. And, and then <laughs> the acoustic cover is gonna come in, and someone's gonna be like, ah, uh, what <laughs> if I'm? Say, <laughs> I, I thought you were gonna tie this back together, and it'd be like, I wanna know what love is. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now that's going to be stuck in my head. Thank you very much. Uh, you are welcome. Well, this has been the most epic introduction to probably any topic that we've ever talked about. It's true. And what's great is we're kind of kicking it back a little bit old school style because we haven't done like the official kind of quintessential question cast in a little while. And so we're going back to what we used to do where we've got a couple voicemails and we want to listen to them. And answer questions. Sorry, I thought it was actually going to be more nuanced than that when I started the whole explanation. But really, it's just that simple. So are you ready for a couple of voicemails? Let's do it. All right, here we go. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for uh, the opportunity to be able to send in questions. My name is uh, Clifton. Me and my girlfriend, Ashley, are big fans of the show and listen all the time and just love your guys' content. Thank you so much. Um, the question I wanted to ask was, um, there is, especially now, there's been a lot of talks, and you guys have done a lot of talks about um, particular evangelical leaders who have either disqualified themselves from ministry or started talking about uh, platforms or particular theological opinions that um, can either become very dangerous or start to cause worry amongst uh, other evangelicals. And so my question was, uh, when people ask you about particular teachers, um, where is it that you draw the line between um, suggesting someone as a reputable source, even if it's in a particular theological area, and where do you draw the line of suggesting people in that they're, they're too far away from orthodoxy to become reputable anymore? Uh, thank you very much, and you guys have a great day. Goodbye. So our brother Clifton, kicking us off, 
I love this question. This is super good. And the reason why I think this question is really helpful is because you and I inadvertently, we've never done this purposely, but we kind of danced around this whole idea of maybe how we might establish orthodoxy or I or really like even better how he nuances the question, which is where is, do we draw the line for like recommending somebody that something, yeah. somebody or something has said, like we're a Christian teacher. Is it repeatable source? Is it something that you would, let's say, put out there or affirm and we've spoken a lot about examples of teachers, preachers that we would say, let's not repeat that. Yeah. But we haven't kind of solidified or kind of crystallized. And I'm not going to say the words that people want me to about <laughs> <laughs> like, maybe here are some things that you and I like pass through the sieve yeah. of trying to determine what is that line. So I'm going to let you go first. Maybe there's a, what, what like a couple of things that come to like the top of your mind. And maybe this is like just muscle memory for you. Like you've kind of acquired over time and whether or not you have like a formal rubric for this, you probably do because you listen to Scottish history podcasts, but <laughs> what are some of the things that establish the line for you for whether a Christian teacher is repeatable source? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a little bit of, that's a little bit of a loaded question, right? Because what you said oh, is, I know it is, you said, uh, whether a Christian teacher is a, repeat, yes. a repeatable source. So yes. that, that's the first tier, right? Is right. this person so far wrong, so wrong about what they're teaching that they actually are no longer a Christian? So somebody like, and, and this is controversial when I say it and I say it with, even though we're kind of in a lighthearted fashion, like this is a lighthearted show for the most part, this is a serious statement. I understand the gravity of what I'm saying. William Lane Craig is not a Christian, right? His theology places him outside of the boundaries of Christianity, just as much as a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness. So just like I wouldn't recommend a Jehovah's Witness scholar on some sort of Christian topic because they're not a Christian, I might say, read this work because it, it has something fruitful to say. Of course. Right. But I, I would heavily qualify that by saying, keep in mind, this person is not a Christian. You know, I was looking at, I was looking at the syllabus for my program that I'm doing through North American Reform Seminary because I'm, I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to think like, is this the right program for me? Do I have time to complete it? Am I able to give it my all? So I'm looking through the syllabus for the program. And in one of the sections, they recommend a Greek teacher, but they have this little statement that says, uh, this teacher is an excellent Greek instructor, but he's not reformed. And so his, his exegetical insights are not something we can always endorse. I would say that's an important way to speak about things. But when you're talking about someone like William Lane Craig, or I would say someone like even like Greg Boyd or the people whose theology proper is so bad that it really does constitute worshiping another God, right? Right. Those are people that I don't, I don't think we should ever recommend them for the edification of the reader. There might still be reasons to read their works, but those reasons end up being, I think, primarily polemical, right? So yes. William Lane Craig may be able to defend the resurrection of Jesus Christ in a debate, but that Jesus Christ that he's defending the resurrection of is not truly human, according to his theology. It right. isn't fully God, according to his theology. And I know he would deny those those statements. And there's a whole lot of argumentation that goes behind that. But he's not he's not defending the resurrection of of the second person of the Trinity who is fully God and fully man. He's defending the resurrection of the Trinity or the resurrection of the son the same way that Apollinarius would exactly the same way that Apollinarius right. would. Um, so you have to you have to sort of start with that first level of assessment of is this person even within the realm of of Christian orthodoxy. So those kinds of questions would revolve typically around 
questions around the the doctrine of the Trinity, questions around the doctrine of the incarnation, the hypostatic union, and then also I would say um, questions around like general metaphysics, right? If 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 you have someone that is claiming to be a Christian but then says, "But the whole world is a hologram," maybe we shouldn't we shouldn't endorse that teacher in the sense that we recommend their reading for the edification of the Christian. Again, right. there might be all sorts of reasons to read that person. William Lane Craig has done some brilliant work on the metaphysics of abstract entities revolving around our numbers, real things, right? These abstract entities that we think of, those are tangentially related to his theological positions, but he's a brilliant philosopher. So some of that stuff you can read for edification in areas outside of theology itself, like not theology proper, but like theology as a discipline. But as far as for, you know, um, devotional edification, like the building up of believers in the faith or the teaching of theology, there are some teachers who are so far off in central areas that we shouldn't even really think of them as Christians anymore. So those people don't recommend their writings at all. Does it make sense? Right. Yeah, it does. That's why this question is so helpful is because of the qualifying Right. The fact that he's referencing Christian teachers. So it's a little bit nuanced. And I think actually that's where the rub is because something that you said that I think is like really important for people to hear. And that is this idea of theology proper. That's why we invested in having like a whole series where we went through right. a whole theological series. And I'm just going to borrow from some of that material and just say, go listen to that. Yeah. It, not, not in the sense that like we're trying, well, we, we put forward what we think is accurate representation of what the scriptures teach, but every person needs to have a firm understanding. This is like, to your point, this idea of the pyramid again and like having a firm foundation for right. it. The theology proper is the test of that. If you don't have a good definition of what that is, you understand it in some kind of sense of completeness, then that's where we ought to start with the evaluation process. I, I want to note, because I think that sometimes it's possible when people hear you and I speak about this, that they get a little bit bent out of shape because they think we're being unfair, uncharitable. Right. And I want to just draw from First Peter, the end of chapter one into chapter two, and just quote him because we know that we can trust Peter writing in the, under the power of the Holy Spirit here. He says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But false prophets arose from among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So right. that's a clear and definitive statement. So there were false prophets, of course, among the people of Israel in the Old Testament. That's just a matter of historical record. And then false prophets were a constant problem in the New Testament as well. Right. And those, of course, in the Old Testament who were false prophets were supposed to be stoned, but the people rarely had the will to deal with them. So they multiplied, causing all kinds of disaster to the spiritual life of God's people. And so here you have Peter saying, there will be false teachers among you. So this idea of among you, I think sometimes we get this sense that the false teachers exist in this higher level outside of our own influence, outside of our own kind of rubbing and coming together of the body of Christ. But Peter is writing to the church and says, there will be false prophets among you. So he's not necessarily just talking about like mass distributed cult of personality. He's talking about people in the local church, members of a local congregation. So I say all that to say the Clifton question is really good. We should all yeah. be thinking about this and being discerning about it. And we have to understand how are we going to measure up 
against what people are saying in the scriptures. And so for me, I'm with you, of course. And if I were to like kind of parse out or add just a little bit to like the theology proper conception for me, where my mind tends to go is in two places. One is that the message comes from a different source. So, you know, Peter says, we didn't follow these cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he actually goes on later to say, you know, some teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. So the true teacher sources what he says from the Bible. So for me, like, that's the first thing. Any, anytime I see like significant deviance from the scriptures itself, even just like in, I don't know if you're like this, when you're reading a book or content, if the argument is not only straying, I would say like polemically too far away from the scriptures, but there is like a lack of reference, a lack yeah. of resource, a lack of centers in the scriptures, that's a sign that the teaching is more influenced by the human mind than it is by the mind of Christ. And of course, like we need to be aware of our central arguments from silence. And a lot I find of, I would say like quote unquote Christian teachers who are not that make those arguments from silence. Yeah. And the second thing would be that the substance of the message is different. And primarily for me, that's a way of measuring it by way of is Jesus Christ always central in the orthodoxy? So if we have everything that we need for life and godliness in Jesus, then for the false teacher, Jesus is going to be at the margin somewhere. He gets pushed out. Even if it's very subtle and very slight, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who brought them. Right. So I would say that what's important for us to remember is that even what Peter's saying there is that there's this word secretly, because of course it's rare for someone in the church to openly deny Jesus. That's why this question is so good. Movement away from the centrality of Christ is subtle. The false teacher will speak about how other people can help or change your life. But if you listen carefully to what he's saying, you will see that Jesus Christ is not essential to the message. So this idea of those two things, when the message comes from a different source and the substance of the message is different, that's when I always kind of start to perk up and say, this is not repeatable. This, this is not orthodoxy. Yeah. And so you have, you have those people, that's really good stuff. And you know, the point is with a lot of this too, is just as you're saying, if the, if the person in question denies the efficacy or inerrancy or infallibility of the scripture, like they're starting from such a different presupposition Yes, that we're, even if we come to the same, kind of like we talked about with the Pentecostal and the Storianism stuff from a couple of weeks ago, even if they come to the same conclusion, their starting point and the way they got there is so different that actually they're probably saying something different. So, you know, we we have like the people who are, are so wrong about theology proper that they're no longer really properly considered a Christian. And then you have people, I would say like Michael Heiser, who start with such a different understanding of what the revelation of God is that even though they, they don't necessarily err in terms of theology proper that I know of, um, they still are not a repeatable teacher because the way that they're getting to their arguments is not a Christian way to argue. Right. And so again, Michael Heiser has lots of, lots of helpful insights into the scriptures. Like, don't get me wrong. Some of the work that he's done on Egyptian parallels, like is really good, but you have to be really cautious about how you appropriate some of that stuff with these people because they start from such a different place. So you, you have kind of this, this farthest out circle of the people that, either because they're theology proper or their doctrine of the incarnation or some, some metaphysical 
presupposition about the way the world exists is so wrong that even if they say the same words, they, they can't possibly mean the same thing as us. Right. Those people are not reputable or repeatable teachers. And then you have the people whose presuppositions about the scriptures are so wrong that they're not reputable or repeatable. But inside that, inside that circle now, we as we go in towards the middle and we get closer to someone who's right about most things but wrong about something, you have people who, um, I would say... Their, the issue with their theology is not so grave that it discredits them as a as a Christian or even right. as a Christian teacher. But because the issue they have kind of infects the rest of what they're saying, it's usually best to get that information from someone who does not have that problem. So someone like a Bruce Ware or a Wayne Grudem would fall into this category or a John Piper, or I would even say a John MacArthur, where you, sure. you could get a lot of really great, instructive, helpful things from all of those men. Wayne, Wayne Grudem's systematic theology is full of true statements about Jesus, about God, about theology in general. The same with Bruce Ware, the same with John Piper, John MacArthur. But there's nothing in John MacArthur or Bruce Ware or or Wayne Grudem or people in that circle. Paul Washer might be another person I know that's going to push people's feels a little bit, um, ironically, um, that you can't get from someone else, right? So I see this all the time on the internet. People say, like, what systematic theology should I read? And someone says, read Wayne Grudem. It's really approachable. And someone else says, don't read Wayne Grudem because he's wrong about the Trinity. He's wrong about... Uh, he's wrong about the charismatic gifts, blah, blah, whatever it is, right. all valid points. They don't always recommend a suitable alternative, though. So then usually someone else comes in and says, well, Michael Horton has Pilgrim Theology, which is about the same length. It's about the same difficulty level. And you're not going to run into the same problems that you do with with Wayne Grudem. And that's true, especially for recommendations for young Christians, because, uh, you know, a, a more mature Christian who's who's been in the faith for a couple years has done some study, has, has studied the confessions, understands the catechisms. They're going to be better equipped to read something like Wayne Grudem and be able to go, yeah, chapter one on theology proper is bad. Chapter two on the Trinity is bad. But, you know, once he gets to soteriology, that's pretty good. And ecclesiology, yeah, he's a Baptist. I disagree with that, but that's okay. Like, they're going to be able to sift that out a little bit better. But a new right. Christian is going to read that and they're going to go, well, this person recommended it to me, so everything in it must be fine. So right. there's that kind of that second circle of people who probably probably are okay to read. And it, for the most part, they're reputable and repeatable teachers. But because there's something in their theology that's really wrong, it makes sense to recommend another source instead. Right. I agree with that. I think that it's helpful. Like we need to, in addition to like having this sense that we want to be discerning ourselves as we process information, as we engage ourselves with it, there's nothing wrong with asking for help. And so maybe this is like shameless, but I would put it even a plug out for our own little tiny Facebook group. Like yeah. that's a great example of a place where just try to reach out to others who are like-minded, who might've gone before you in that journey. And even for asking for a resource like that would be able to provide just a little bit of guidance on perhaps the right thing. But all, all of this, I think just leads me to say, this is why the creeds are so helpful. This is why the confessions are so helpful. This is why actually studying theology in some way is so useful so that you can develop this kind of sieve, this kind of approach, however you want to talk about it, like a screen, if you will, so you can sort out this stuff as you're hearing it. But you should always have that mind. I mean, where this idea of like testing everything is true and we should be there should be like no limitation to that with respect to the idea that just because somebody said, well, this is what you should read, who this is who you should listen to. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't all the time be saying, well, how does this comport though with the scripture? Right. And the only way you get to that point is through study 
meditation and prayer of the scripture right. itself. That's really the only way, right? I mean, yeah. so there's there's no substitute, there's no shortcuts. It's just hard work, but it's hard work empowered by the spirit. Yeah, and and then there's actually, I think, there's kind of a third tier, right? So so there's the people who aren't even aren't even really Christians, either because they're explicitly not Christians. And so sure. there might be value in reading what they're saying, and especially if they're not talking about theological issues. Uh, and then there's the people who are Christians. We affirm, we affirm that uh, as far as we can tell, they're they're saved individuals. They love the Lord. They're not trying to distort the truth. But there's an error that's so bad that we should probably look somewhere without that error to get the same information. Right. And then there's this sort of, I think, this last group. And I would actually say every single person on the planet falls into this category. I fall into this category. You fall into this category. Michael Horton falls in this category. Our Scott Clark, everybody does, is nobody is right about everything, right? There's nobody who has a perfect theology. And so this last group is the people that you would say, this person is generally reliable, except for this one subject. And I probably wouldn't read them for this one subject. And just because everybody knows I love Mike Horton, I'll use him as an example. Mike Horton, I think, is right about almost everything. I think he's wrong about republication, in terms of the Mosaic Covenant. So as although uh, the Introduction to Covenant Theology was one of the first Covenant Theology books that I read, and it was very instructive and helped me to start that process, I think he is far too influenced by some of the negative elements of Meredith Klein to recommend that book as a way for someone to get their feet wet in terms of Covenant Theology, right? So, so, there is nothing that I would say Michael Horton should not be listened to except this one area and maybe his two kingdom theology, which is a related issue. I would say to someone, go ahead and read Pilgrim Theology. It's a great book. Read the whole thing. But you might want to think a little bit more carefully about when he approaches covenant theology in chapter X. R.C. Sproul, another hero of the faith that you and I both look up to. Right. When I look at his book, I, you know, everyone's a theologian. When I make a recommendation, I say everyone's a theologian is a great systematic theology. It's approachable. He's funny. He's winsome. He's everything that R.C. Sproul was and is. But his Christology can be a little bit weird in terms of how he articulates things. So maybe find a different source to really, really dig in on Christology. So those are the people that I would say fit in that final category. And that's literally everyone else in the world is the people who we would look at and say they're generally reliable. So we can recommend them without reservation, but we should know enough about their, you should know enough about a person's work just in general, that when you make a recommendation, you can also include areas where someone should, maybe even if it's just like, have your warning, have your alerts up a little bit. Right. Right. When you read Michael Horton, you don't have to worry and you don't really have to worry about covenant theology either, but like you don't have to really be all that concerned about error, in my opinion, until you get to when he starts to talk about the relationship of the mosaic and the uh, covenant of grace. Right. That's where it right. starts to become a little bit dicey. And that's the thing is the closer to the closer to perfect, for lack of a better word, that a person gets the more granular those warnings have to be, those nuances, right? The relationship of the Mosaic Covenant to the Covenant of Grace in terms of republication is a pretty highbrow technical element to be wary of. Most people reading Pilgrim Theology would not know enough or even notice that there's a potential problem. And to be honest, and I hope this doesn't sound arrogant, you have to be pretty well read and understand really technical elements to even see where there's a problem there. 
right? If you read his theology, you're probably going to come away with it thinking he's teaching kind of basic run-of-the-mill Presbyterian Westminster Covenant theology. He's not, right? but but you're going to kind of come away with that uh, with that impression. So I, I think in general, that's where most people fall in the reformed world. You know, like I think of like Scott Swain, really, really great reputable teacher. I would probably articulate some nuanced elements of his doctrine of the Trinity differently. So when I recommend Scott Swain on something, I might say, you know, but if he's talking about the Trinity, just take it with a grain of salt and make sure you're reading somebody else to kind of compare him to. Right. That makes sense. I, I, so let me just round that out by saying, I think the critical point here and I'm glad that you brought this up is it's about theology proper, like the right. close handed issues that we must assess and determine whether or not this person is Christian or not. That is the stuff we really need to make sure that we understand exceptionally well. All the other stuff, I'm not saying it's minor, but it is of a more nuanced nature. Right. And like you said, some of the stuff for like republication, you even have to have the categories to know what that is. And so that would probably require a wider reading. And it's not to say that most of the people maybe even listening to us chat right now aren't of that persuasion because they have a turn of mind and interest right. in theology of a more complex nature. But the bottom line is we're concerned about the truth. And so it's easy to pick out the stuff that's so far from the truth, even if we use the same words. Like nobody, you or I are not going to recommend Mormon or Jehovah re, right. you know, Witness resources, even though they're, they're using the name of Jesus, because we know we're talking about different things. So part of it is understanding the categories. So hopefully that's been helpful. Like I think what you kind of layered out is in like the different tiers or hierarchy, tiers probably is not the right word, but this hierarchy, a sense of understanding is so important because there's no doubt that the scripture puts on us this incumbent responsibility to make sure that we are trying everything out and measure yeah. everything up. Yeah. And I think oftentimes there's no quick answers here, but the answer really stems from just being so like pickled in the scriptures, like really like marinating yourself in the truth of God, that this just becomes second nature. Yeah. And the Holy Spirit, especially if we're studying the scriptures both devotionally sitting under solid teaching and then praying through that, actually asking that we would be illuminated in our minds and our hearts and our expression and our practicing and in our piety of the scriptures, that prayer will be honored. And in so doing, I think our discernment will be increased. Right. Yeah. So it, it, this is like an unsatisfying answer in some ways. Like there's some things we can point to and say, like, you should look for this and you should look for this signpost. And obviously if you exit off the highway here, you're going in the wrong direction. All that's true, but because there are so many ways to go wrong and only one way to go right, yeah. really what we have to say is study, not the counterfeit, but study what is authentic. Right. Yeah. Yeah. True that. Yeah. That's, that's basically where I end up. So let's, one more. Yeah, let's do it. All right. Here we go. Hello, brothers. My name is Diego. I'm originally from Mexico, but currently working here in Maui, Hawaii. Uh, big fan of the show. I've been super encouraged by it. And, uh, yeah, I hope you both are doing well with everything that's going on. Um, I was just driving, and I had a question come to mind. I know that uh, portraying Jesus in, as far as movies, painting, um, it can be considered a second commandment violation. Uh, I guess I wanted to kind of understand that better. I come from a Catholic background, was saved recently, so I'm, I'm just learning. Uh, and as a follow-up question, sometimes when I'm trying to meditate on the cross, I picture it in my mind as what it would have been like, or I try to picture Jesus dying and as a way to kind of focus my mind on um, the atonement. Uh, but then I was wondering, is that a second commandment violation to have images of Jesus? 
physical form, but in my mind, uh, because obviously the inward behavior of the the judge. So, anyways, just kind of a random question, but I'm working my way up through all of your podcasts. I'm at like 13, 14, and uh, loving it. Love the systematic theology. It's super helpful to me, uh, being relatively new to the faith. Uh, thank you so much. God bless you both. And, yep, love you guys. Take care. So, this is also a great question. And it I love is. this because we have the most honest and just authentic listeners. Maybe everybody says that, but I know everybody says like, well, we have the best listeners. No, listen, our listeners, are, <laughs> they're not just the best. They're, you know, they're also the most authentic and most generous and most honest. And I love Diego's question, uh, especially because apparently he's living the dream in Hawaii, but also because he's asking something that if we're all honest, if we've all come to this place, if everybody's ever explained to us or questioned us with the idea that the second commandment might also be covering images of Jesus and not just like images of like cows or snakes. What do we do with that? Because most of us grew up either with images of Jesus or we put them in our own minds. And I love his focus because he's asking the question in the context of what about meditating and appreciating some kind of theological statement that I'm associating and benefiting from by linking together with the image of Christ. Yeah. And so, We've spoken about this before, but I think this question is significantly different from what we talked about that it's worth engaging in because we, we've already granted that worship of Christ is, of course, central to our faith. And the thought of the Savior must, in every instance, be accompanied with that reverence which belongs to his worship. And what I mean by that is we cannot think of him without apprehension of the majesty that is his. And if we do not entertain that sense of majesty, then we are guilty of impiety and we dishonor God. So it should also be granted that the only purpose that could properly be served by a pictorial representation is that it would convey to us some thought or lesson representing him that is consonant with truth and promotive of worship. And that's where I think where this line of questioning is coming from. And so the question is inescapable, really. Is a pictorial representation a legitimate way of conveying truth regarding Jesus and of contributing to the worship which this truth should evoke? Yeah. And so we're all aware of the influence exerted on the mind and the heart by pictures. Pictures are powerful media and communication. So how suggestive they are for either good or evil, and all the more so, when should we accompany our meditation with those types of images? So that's, that's my whole setup. And I know we spoke about this before, but in the context of Diego's question, what do you, what do you want to say like with respect to meditation and images of Christ? Yeah, so I, I want to maybe like take a step back and get a little more foundational. So we did a whole episode on the the, the second commandment, and we talked about the Christological implications. We we talked a little bit, if I recall, about the you know like the confessional position on it. But I want right. to get a little bit behind that even. So if you go to everybody knows the first question of the Westminster Catechism. E even if you ask Google what the what the chief end of man is, <laughs> Google knows that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And, and right you know, it's, I didn't plan this. I hadn't really thought about it with last week's affirmation, and then this question from Clifton, but John Piper has done a lot of harm to the reform community by changing very, very slightly changing the answer to the uh, first question of the Westminster Catechism, right? So the answer to the first question of the Westminster Catechism is that man's chief end is to glorify God 
uh, and to enjoy him forever. And John Piper with his Christian hedonism, which I don't think his theology on this is necessarily wrong, but he's, he's changed that answer. So now it says man's chief end is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And now if you understand what the divines actually mean by enjoying him forever, he's not wrong, but when you turn this into this Christian hedonism that he talks about and you start to think about what the word enjoy means, it leads us in the wrong direction. So like the catechism usually does, the next question further explains what's going on. And it says, what rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him forever or enjoy him? It says the word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and the New Testament is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. Well, you still have to keep going, right? The third question is, what do the scriptures principally teach? So the first question is, what's the purpose of man? Glorify and enjoy God. The second question is, what has God done to show us how we can do that? And the answer is, he's given us the scriptures. The third question is, so what do those scriptures principally teach? And the answer is, the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. So, So we have these two concepts that are still pushing their way through the catechisms up to question three, glorifying God in the, in reference to the catechism is primarily about what, uh, what man is to believe concerning God. So glorifying God is not primarily about ascribing, uh, you know, we think of it in terms of like musical worship, right? We, we think about it in sort of these outward manifestations of our devotion to God, but in terms of what the, the catechism is getting at, it's really about believing and proclaiming true things about God according to his word. That's what it means to glorify God. And so to enjoy God forever is to obey his moral law out of gratitude for what he's done for us, right? right? So so even before we start to talk about the second commandment and, and the, the nuances of, of images and what's appropriate and the regular principle, what we have to realize is that God has created us to proclaim true things about him, right? Adam was created as a prophet, a priest, and a king, right? The, the first Adam had those three offices and failed just as the second Adam has those three offices and succeeds, right? So, so the proclamation of truth about God was part of Adam's original intention, But also obedience to God's revealed law was part of that intention. And so it's also for us. So we have to understand that all of these questions about what's appropriate for us to do in terms of, of meditation and worship that has to be governed and constrained by what God teaches in his law, what he teaches in his moral law, particularly in, in the, the revealed will in the old Testament, and then how that's further explained and articulated in the new Testament. And, and I think where that gets us to with this is that we are never in scripture commanded to meditate on anything apart from God's law and word, right? right. Everywhere in the scripture, when the phrase meditate is used, it's in reference to meditating on God's revealed will as given to us in the scripture, primarily his law. So the, the concept of meditating on an image of Jesus, even if you take the reformed position about the, the consequences of, of images and how that, how the incarnation works, the Nestorian argument, all of that stuff, even if you take that away, 
we're never commanded or permitted. And in fact, we're commanded opposite to this. We're never commanded to meditate on anything except God's word. So even if we ignore all of the rest of the arguments about images of God and images of Jesus, this question, and I I don't want this, I'm I'm, I'm getting a little worked up here. This is not directed at Diego. His his question was awesome. And and I can hear from the way that he asks it and, and, you know, drawing some conclusions about his history. He talks about coming out of the Roman Catholic Church drawing on those conclusions, like he has a sensitive heart to this. He's asking this because he wants to do the right thing. So this is not me being worked up at the question or anything like that. But the idea that we might meditate on something other than God's law, we've already kind of lost the battle before we even started, even irrespective of all of those other kinds of considerations that reform people have about images of God and images of Jesus. Right. This is a good point because I think what you're doing is you're trying to direct us into a category. This is a means again, that it's not just the end. The means is important. Right. And what you're saying is you need to understand the way in which God has defined meditation. What is appropriate meditation? Not what necessarily like appeals to your emotions, what appeals to what gives you a sense that you're actually being effective or efficacious in your meditation, but what God says is the effective means. What is God honoring? What is actually the components and the substance of worship? This is what's so difficult. I think actually this is why many Christians struggle with the second commandment when we speak about these terms is because the regular principle pushes against us so hard that it almost sometimes goes against what we think is the best way to do something. And so we really have to say, are we the kind of people that take God at his word and the, the irony of that is all he's given us is his word. Right. Like that is the important thing. So like practically speaking, I think there are grave dangers in affixing the power of worship or meditation to an image of Christ. And some of these we've already talked about, but just practically speaking to name a couple, I think there's always a danger of worshiping the image of Christ and attaching power to it. In fact, actually I came across, I wish I could find where this was. I came across a quote from a Protestant publishing firm that was actually trying to advertise. It was, they had a series of prints about Jesus. And one of the quotes was something like when a person plants deeply and firmly in his mind, the picture of Christ it has a strong and powerful influence in his life. Right. Like that's the thing we're used to hearing that, that sounds so good, right? It's like, if you want to think about good things, like think about that, which is holy, think about Jesus. But instead of attributing this influence to Christ and the Holy spirit, they're attributing it to a picture. And of course they're using it for marketing purposes to sell it. But looking at a picture of Christ hanging upon a cross, think about this. It tells me nothing. It doesn't right. tell me that he hung there for sin. It doesn't tell me that he hung there for you know my, my restoration. It doesn't tell me that he's the son of God. Only the word of God does that. And it's the word of God that has been given to us to tell the story of salvation through the blood of Christ. It's not through the foolishness of pictures that sinners are converted, converted but through the foolishness of preaching. And right. this is why like you and I harp on this so much is because... My, my understanding of this has really changed over time. And I, there was honestly a part in time where I'd say this question is without distinction. There's no definition here that we really need to spend all this time on. And what I've been convicted of is no, there really is. Because when we spend so much time trying to associate the ability of ourselves to worship effectively or to meditate or understand something effectively with whether or not we can conjure up enough emotion associated with an image because we think that is a useful tool, what we're actually doing is we're supplanting the only useful tool, the only efficacious tool that God has given us, which is the word of God with our own imagination. And that is ultimately, it will always be problematic. It might not be problematic for you today, but it's as if, I don't know, like if you're 
trying to drive a golf ball and you're slightly off to the green by like three degrees, it doesn't seem like it's that much at the point where you're striking the ball. But once that ball goes out a hundred yards, assuming you can hit it that far, which I cannot, it's going to be <laughs> way off course. And so this is just one of those things where it's better to get it out of your mind literally now and to focus on meditating on the word and what it tells us explicitly rather than trying to come up with something implicit that we invent for ourselves in our own mind's eye. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. So I'm, I'm actually not involved with a lot of online discussion groups anymore, but most people who know me know that I was heavily involved for a long time in a lot of online discussion groups. And, you know, I, I've probably held convictions on the second commandment and its consequences for images of Jesus for probably four or five years now. Um, and what I've noticed is that almost across the board, and I, I only say this because I don't have comprehensive knowledge. I've never actually encountered argument that doesn't fit into this category, but I'm sure there might be one out there. So I want to hedge my bets a little bit, but almost across the board, arguments in favor of using images in any fashion in relation to Jesus or in relation to God, whether it's for worship or instruction or because I like them, right? Whatever the, whatever the argument is in favor of using images of Jesus or images of God or the Holy Spirit, almost all of them, if you really boil them down, boil down to the scripture's not enough for me, right? Either, right. either the scripture's not enough to instruct my kids, right? They, they can't read, so I got to give them a picture, Right. Or the scripture is not enough to drive me to emotional worship. Right. I, I, right, you know, I can't right. connect with the book. But when I think of that picture that I saw of Jesus with the nails in his hands, you know, that really just connects with me. Right? All of the arguments, when you boil them down, they, they come down to basically a statement that the scripture is not sufficient to do what God said it was going to do. And, and this is where I think it's important to understand. And that's why I went the direction I did is that questions of this nature Although it's important and quite frankly, like a lot of fun if you're into this stuff to talk about all the nuances of of Nestorianism and the arguments about the incarnation, I, all of that is is important talks to have and it's fun. But all of this really boils down to our doctrine of scripture. And, and here's what I want to read to maybe close us out on this is, uh, you know, Westminster Confession, chapter one, section one. Right. It's the it's the chapter on Holy Scripture. Right. And I'm not going to read the whole whole beginning part, but it basically says like there's a certain light of nature uh, that that reveals certain things about about God, right? There's certain certain elements in nature that give us certain knowledge about God. Yet they are not sufficient to give us that knowledge of God and of His will, which is necessary unto salvation. So one of the arguments that comes up in relation to whether or not images of Jesus are fruitful or even possible is people can say like, well, even though I don't know specifically what it looked like, I know generally what a human man looks like. So I'm not saying something false. I'm just saying something incomplete. Well, that's information you're getting from the light of nature. And that right. light of nature is not sufficient to give you knowledge of God sufficient for salvation. And they're not making the argument that it does, but that's an important point is the light of knowledge that we get from nature is incomplete and insufficient. It's, it's never complete. It's never sufficient and we have a complete and sufficient for it. And so the the confession goes on to say, um, therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and declare that his will unto the church and afterwards, and this is the key part, 
for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh, the malice of Satan and of the world to commit the same wholly unto writing, which makes his scriptures most necessary. And so all of the arguments in favor of utilizing images of Jesus, particularly of Jesus is where it comes up in favor of those boil down to a refutation of this statement, right? This statement says that God revealed himself in all sorts of ways at different times in all sorts of manners. And that was good for the time it came, but because those things were insufficient where those things were, were limited and time bound and locked and subject to corruption, he was pleased to commit it to writing to accomplish a better task. When we deny that the scripture is sufficient by arguing for images of Jesus, we deny that God did the right thing. God could have inspired a picture book. I mean, I, I say that flippantly sometimes of like, well, God didn't inspire a picture book, but the reality is God could have inspired someone to draw a picture of Jesus, a perfect right. image of Jesus that was inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's not outside the realm of possibility. God chose not to do that for a reason. So when we, when we think that we need to construct these images of God, we need to do something, we need to meditate on something other than his word, which is what he's, the only thing he's commanded us to meditate on. We're kind of subverting this idea that scripture is actually sufficient, either implicitly, or I even hear it explicitly sometimes. Right. Well, my kids can't read, so I got to give them a picture book because that keeps their attention. Well, you know, Calvin said, like, if you feel you need to use picture books, you're just a bad teacher. I mean, it's, it's the reality, like <laughs> no, I, God, I God gave us saying. his word and his word is enough. And that's what it boils down to. I understand. That's why this is such a fruitful and profitable question is because I think it gets at the heart of what I know what you're not saying is like, listen, everybody out there that's ever used or relied on or looked at an image of Jesus is actively opposing the message of the gospel right. and the fact that God gave us the word. However, you ought to consider that actually implicitly that is what we do. Right. And so we just need to be thoughtful about that. Sometimes we need somebody to say like, Hey, watch out. You're in dangerous territory here. You probably didn't even realize it. Right. And so I think we've all come to like you and I have certainly come to that place. Uh, Let me finish by just reading something that's better than I could ever say. And if somebody were to ask me, I mentioned this before, but I was able to go back and find the quote in my reading. This was the single piece of writing that pushed me over the edge on this. Because again, I had this respect of, I didn't think that images of Christ were helpful in worship. There was no way I would use them like in a, in a kind of a profound or volitional sense. And yet at the same time, there were times where I was like, well, what's the big deal if it kind of happens in the context of like, you just kind of run into it or you need to use it for your children's education. And this was the quote that pushed me over the edge. This is from John Redboots Owen from his work, the masterful work, The Glory of Christ. It's a little bit long, but I just want to read it in its entirety because I think it suits our conversation and draws it to an appropriate close. This is what John Owen writes. Many there are who, not comprehending, not being affected with that divine spiritual description of the person of Christ, which is given us by the Holy Ghost in Scripture, do feign unto themselves false representations of him by images and pictures, so as to excite cardinal and corrupt affections in their minds. By the help of their outward senses, they reflect on their images, the shape of a human body, cast into postures and circumstances, dolorous or triumphant, and so, by the working of their fancy, raise a commotion of mind in themselves, which they suppose to be love unto Christ. But all these idols are false teachers of lies. 
the true beauty and ambulness of the person of Christ, which is the formal object and cause of divine love, is so far from being represented herein, as that the mind is thereby wholly diverted from the contemplation of it. For no more can be so pictured unto us, but what may belong unto a mere man, and that is arbitrarily referred unto Christ, not by faith, but by corrupt imagination. The beauty of the person of Christ, as represented in the scripture, consists in things invisible unto the eyes of flesh. They are such as no hand of man can represent or shadow. It is the eye of faith alone that can see this king in his beauty. Yeah. I, I love that. Yeah. That pushed me so far over the edge, it wasn't even close. Just this idea that basically what he's saying here is like, don't trade what is like a false sense of intimacy or worship because of imagination with what God has ordained as the true means of faith. And we talked before as this is very similar. I use an extreme expression of, I think this idea of it's like having a like sexual intimacy or relationship with your partner prior to marriage, because like you're living together versus the real thing, which comes after marriage, the beatific vision that seeing Christ with our eyes is something that God in his infinite wisdom and mercy has retained and reserved for heaven alone. And so when we try to get a cheater view of that now, even for good reason, we're actually doing more harm than good. And I shouldn't have said even any of that because Owen said it so perfectly. I should just end it with a, it is the eye of faith alone that can see the King and his beauty. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the last thing I'll say about is this is, I know a lot of people who have have come from either a position of just indifference, like, yeah, you know, I'm not really an image of Jesus, but like to each his own, or right. from a position of really being like pro, pro icons, pro images of Jesus. I know a lot of people who have made that transition and that, that pathway to now becoming convinced that at the very least, these images are not helpful and, and are quite harmful. Right. Some people don't quite make the jump to say they're sinful, but they just don't do us any good. I don't know anyone who has come to that position who goes, man, I really regret not using more images of Jesus. Like, or or I really miss using images of Jesus. And, And the simple fact is, I don't think any Protestant in their right mind, right, who's really thinking through what they're saying, would ever say, I really wish that I depended on the scriptures less. Right. I I really wish that I had I had meditated on and and bathed in and pickled myself in and depended on God's written word to me less. That that's just not a statement that a Christian who's committed to the sufficiency of scripture can make. But but to say I really think I need to use images is to say I'm going to depend on the scriptures less. Right it's on. to say that the scriptures are not all that necessary for me because I've got this image, right? So, so we should live our lives in a way where when we get to the end of it, or when we're looking back at it from eternity, we can say with a clean conscience, I really trusted in this, in, in God's written word. I really believed what he said in his word. And I just don't think that an overly dependent or any dependence on images of Jesus or images of God or the Holy Spirit, I don't think a dependence on those things is compatible with a true full dependence on the written word and the written word only. And I think that's where this question comes down for me, right? Is if I feel like I have to, um, 
I might have just made a really good argument for excuse of psalmody now that I think about it. But um, you basically did. Yeah. If I ha- if I have to look at, <laughs> uh, we'll get into that on a different episode. If I have to look at, if I have to look at the scriptures and be like, I really need a picture. Like you're kind of not coming at it from a Protestant lens. You're not really meditating on God's word. You're meditating on something that came from somewhere else. I think that's fair. Uh, maybe what we're saying is, if you're not fired up about this issue, maybe you should be a little yeah. bit fired up about it. Like you really should decide where you fall on this and come into it with gusto. Uh, and by example, in my own life, and this, so let me kind of try to find some color and context of this. Cause this is a weird thing, but and I, I've never said this to you before, but this is a weird thing. And it's something that is like kind of mess with me and it's going to strike people as odd because it's so small. So many years ago, my mother, your mother-in-law, got me this wonderful gift and it is a uh, very like, and this is, this is so hard for me because I love this thing so much. It's a really tasteful, beautiful uh, chain. It's a cross and it's a, a beautiful, like very masculine. Cause like sometimes it's hard to find like masculine chain so you don't look weird, but like a masculine chain and a cross. This is special to me because she gave it to me. Like it's a piece of jewelry. That's very important to me. And generally this is going to sound odd, but I really actually, for the most part, when it is not a second commandment violation and it's not too image oriented, like I really enjoy a lot of historical Christian art. I think it's beautiful. There's a a profound expression in a lot of things that have been done, both painting, sculpture, and otherwise. And so the thing is, this is a beautiful cross necklace. The cross itself is absolutely beautiful. However, it's a crucifix. Yeah. And I received it before I had the full conviction of what we're talking about now. And I cannot wear this thing in good conscience now. I really can't because when I evaluated and really sought to like measure why I appreciate it, why it was so important to me, why I really loved it. Part of it was, it was hard to separate for me the fact that like what you're wearing is an image of Christ, that it's hard in my own mind's eye to think that like here, there's something, and I'm saying this like from the, the natural perspective, I think there's something comforting about having the image before you, or we yeah. want to make it comforting. Does that make sense? Like we know that it shouldn't be this way, that we should rely purely on the word, but the natural man wants the image so much. And so even having it represented on a piece of jewelry for me is something that I've really struggled with. And so it does impact all parts of our lives. But I say that to be be to, as a emphasis of like, this is why we need to examine it. Like we need to understand, like, is it on our jewelry? Are we comfortable with that? It it can't just be a matter of like, well, everybody does it. Everybody wears it. Like what's a cross without a little image of the man on it. Like that is our problem. And that's why we have to get out of it. And that is why I think Diego's question is so loving and brave. And I'm glad that he was willing to ask it. Yeah. And I think it bears saying as we wind down, like this is, you know, we've commented in the past that there's kind of this like predictable pathway that people who are coming from kind of like a general Calvinist perspective, especially the people who came out of evangelicalism, they kind of come in as Calvinists and they start to move into a more of a confessional range. There's a generally predictable path. And the second commandment is about midway, to be honest, like the images of Jesus is usually like midway through. And then usually it's a seriousness about the Sabbath and like then the implications of that for worship. Like there's a predictable path, but everybody's at a different place on that path. Right. Right. So, so although we should speak strongly and, and vigorously about this, we should also remember, like, we probably came on that same path at some point. Of and course. We probably should be gentle with people who have are on that same path 
place that we just came from. Absolutely. And so you know, there's, there's a progression and, and it takes time to work this stuff out. And sometimes it takes time to just figure out what do I do with all this stuff that I have, right? There's a number of books on my shelf that the cover has pictures of Jesus. Like that's an ethical question that we all have to think about at some point. Like, do I rip the covers off? Do I just not look at them? Like, does it hurt anything that they exist? Should I be smashing idols? Like there, right. there's a, there's a lot of different questions that play into it. So be patient with your brothers and sisters be honest with them, speak yes. vigorously and truthfully and do your best to persuade and convince them. But I'll, I'll share this. Like most people don't realize this. Like I never had a conversation with Jesse trying to convince him about this, this reform position on the second <laughs> commandment. Like I just never did. We never had that conversation. I right. made my views known. Like we had some kind of conversations about it because of certain kinds of Christmas traditions that we have about about local, you know, tourist attractions that we visit every year. Like the conversation came up, <laughs> but at the end of the day, That's it was true. But I mean, honestly, at the end of the day, and this is this is to your credit, Jesse, your your being convinced came from your own study of scripture, taking it seriously and, and taking seriously the tradition and history of the church as been right given on. to us by men better than you or I at explaining the scriptures and being humble enough to actually consider what may be right or wrong. But right. you also and I recognize like we came along the same path in a similar way and we should be patient with our brothers and sisters who are still working through this stuff. Right. I agree. That's the right way to end all this. And in that vein, uh, two things. One is that I don't know how many people know about what you're talking about, this visitation that we do <laughs> <laughs> in the holidays, but it strikes me maybe next year in the December timeframe, we should do a podcast just about that yeah. <laughs> and talk about that because nobody knows. It would be really funny to explain that tradition that is part of our family, but is strange for us. Yeah. We can uh, send all the hate mail directly to you at that point though. <laughs> yeah. I understand that that is like massive triggering. So everybody yeah. get ready for that in about six months time. There's so but, many triggering things about that tradition. Oh, that. Yeah. That's why, listen, this is our style. <laughs> That's what we do. But the second thing is in this vein of like conversation and dialogue, I, I just appreciate so much those who are willing to leave voicemails with questions and allow yeah. us to use them as like, not just fodder for conversation, but like really a means, a spark for a fire, I think, that the Holy Spirit uses to really help purify our thinking and to push us back into scripture. So yeah. in that way, please feel free to continue to leave us voicemails. We listen to everything. We read everything. And you can leave us a voicemail at 607-444-2767. Bros. You can also email us at info at reformbrotherhood.com. But we're just going to be straight up with you guys. We prefer the voicemails. We, we want to hear your voice. It's true. We yeah. are prejudiced for voicemails. <laughs> Our confirmation bias points towards voicemails. Yes, it's straight confirmation <laughs> bias. So thank you, Tony, as always, like for just being willing to, you know, we're just kind of answering some questions, not necessarily entirely off the cuff, but more or less, we're just talking about it. Our podcast is quickly reaching Dan Carlin hardcore history. Like <laughs> this is like the third week in a row that it's been longer than the last. And we're at like 75 minutes now. <laughs> okay. So. so how many, how many episodes of, of like, I'm just going to say, this is the title short Scottish history. Could you have listened to in the course of this podcast? Like 16, I think <laughs> they're like five and a half minutes long. So well, that's actually fairly decent math. Well yeah. done. Well done. Well, to then just end this now. <laughs> In that sense, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. <laughs>